It's good to be with you at the beginning of a new week, sharing with you out of truths that life has taught me, truths that have made the difference between success and failure in my life and can do the same for you. This week, I'm going to speak about one of the highest and most powerful ministries open to any Christian, the ministry of intercession. I believe that this ministry is God's answer to problems that cannot be resolved in any other way. Problems in the lives of individuals, of families, and of whole nations. First of all, I need to define what is meant by intercession. The word intercession in English actually comes from a Latin root, which means to come in between. And in the other languages that are relevant to Scripture, both Hebrew and Greek, the word has basically the same meaning, to come in between. An intercessor is one who comes in between. In between whom or what? The answer is that the intercessor comes in between God and the objects of God's just wrath and judgment. The intercessor stands before God, positions himself between God and those who deserve God's wrath and judgment, and says, God, I acknowledge your justice. You have every right to smite these people. But if you smite them, you're going to have to smite me too, because I'm standing in between you and them. This week we're going to look at a number of the Lord's servants who played the role of intercessors. And I think you'll find that all of them were men close to the heart of God. I believe this particular posture this ministry is something very, very close to the heart of God. The first example we're going to look at is the example of Abraham interceding on behalf of the city of Sodom, which was a very wicked city and ripe for God's judgments. In the 18th chapter of Genesis, we read how the Lord had come to visit Abraham, and the Lord had two angels with him. Abraham welcomed them and entertained them, and they gave Abraham the promise of the heir that was to come, Isaac. And then they were ready to move on. And uh, the Lord told Abraham, I'm going on to have a look at the city of Sodom for myself, to see if it's really as bad as the reports I've heard about it. And we'll read now at this point in Genesis chapter 18, beginning at verse 17. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Another scripture in the book of Amos says that God will do nothing except he reveals his secrets to his prophets. Abraham was a prophet, and God wanted to share his counsel and his purposes and his thoughts with Abraham. The Lord said, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. I will go down now, and see if they've done entirely according to its outcry which has come to me. And if not, I will know. Then the men turned away from there and went towards Sodom, while Abraham was still standing before the Lord. I want you to notice those words. Abraham was standing before the Lord, that is, between the Lord and the city of Sodom, which was the object to God's pending judgment. And Abraham came near and said, Wilt thou indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Wilt thou indeed sweep it away 
and not spare the place for the sake of the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from thee to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from thee. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? Now I want to point out the main features of this situation and its implications for intercession. I've already said we need to see Abraham's posture. He was standing before the Lord, standing between the Lord and Sodom, as it were, holding up his hand and saying, Lord, don't go any further. Then we want to notice Abraham's intimacy with the Lord. Elsewhere in Scripture, Abraham is called the friend of the Lord. And here he was talking to Almighty God as an intimate and personal friend. We need to notice also Abraham's boldness. He was actually challenging God's righteousness. He was not afraid to speak out and say what he thought, and yet with holy reverence at the same time. And then we need to notice also that Abraham had an absolute conviction of God's justice, both positive and negative. Negatively, that God would punish the wicked. Positively, that God would not deal with the righteous as with the wicked. That is an essential part of the ministry of an intercessor, a conviction of God's absolute justice. Now let's read how the conversation proceeded. So the Lord said, If I find in Sodom fifty righteous within the city, then I will spare the whole place on their account. And Abraham answered and said, Now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord, although I am but dust and ashes. Suppose the fifty righteous are lacking five. Wilt thou destroy the whole city because of five? The Lord said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. And Abraham spoke to him yet again and said, Suppose forty are found there. And the Lord said, I will not do it on account of the forty. Then Abraham said, O may the Lord not be angry, and I shall speak. Suppose thirty are found there. And the Lord said, I will not do it if I find thirty there. And Abraham said, Now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. And the Lord said, I will not destroy it on account of the twenty. Then Abraham said, O may the Lord not be angry, and I shall speak only this once. Suppose ten are found there. And the Lord said, I will not destroy it on account of the ten. And as soon as the Lord had finished speaking to Abraham, he departed, and Abraham returned to his place. Again, I want to point out two additional points, that God responds to the prayers of his servants. God did not brush Abraham aside. He listened. And uh, in a certain sense, he allowed his course of action to be influenced by what Abraham said to him. Think of both the privilege and the responsibility of being able to speak to God in such a way that we actually influence his course of action. And then we note that God delights to show mercy. He came down step by step from promising to show mercy if there were 50 to the last promise he made that he would show mercy if there were only ten righteous persons in that entire wicked city. So the Lord said he would spare the entire city of Sodom if he found ten righteous persons in it. This raised a question in my mind some years ago. What was the probable population of Sodom in the days of Abraham? And after some considerable research, I came to the conclusion that there must have been at least 10,000 persons as a minimum in Sodom at that time. So ten persons could cause God to spare a city of at least 10,000. And that gives us 
an interesting proportion, one to a thousand. One righteous person can ward off God's judgment from a thousand wicked persons. You see, we come back again to that illustration of salt that I spoke about in my talks last week. Jesus said, we are the salt of the earth. Two functions of salt. First of all, to give flavor to that which would otherwise lack flavor. Secondly, to hold back the process of corruption. But salt is not dumped out in one piece or one lump or one big portion anywhere, but it's scattered in little grains across whatever has to be salted. And that's how we Christians are. Each of us should be just a little grain of salt, but we should be holding back the process of corruption, recommending the particular area of the earth where we live to God's mercy and to God's favor. Is your life so righteous, so pure, so upright before God, that your very presence would hold back God's judgment from the entire community or area where you live. We need to take into account the tremendous influence that righteous persons can have in the world today. Two ways, by their prayers and by their presence. By their prayers, like Abraham, we can stand between God and the objects of his just wrath and hold off his judgment. And by our very presence, we commend the area where we are, the community, the society, to God's mercy and God's favor. Our presence can cause God to hold back his righteous judgment from an entire community or city or even nation. But on the other hand, passivity and indifference in the face of evil is sinful. James 4.17 says, Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. That scripture really faces us with some kind of a choice. Are we going to commit ourselves to be righteous persons, prayer, warriors, intercessors, holding off God's wrath and judgment on our nation? Or are we going to be passive and indifferent and fail to do what the situation demands? In my talk yesterday, I spoke about Abraham interceding on behalf of Sodom. We saw him in the posture that typifies the intercessor, the one who stands in between. Abraham standing before the Lord, standing between God and the object of God's just wrath, which at that moment was the city of Sodom. In particular, I singled out three features of Abraham's character and relationship with God. First, his intimacy with God. Second, his boldness. And third, his conviction of God's absolute justice, both positive and negative. Positively, that God would spare the righteous. Negatively, that God would judge the wicked. I also pointed out two aspects of God's character revealed by this incident. First, that God responds to the prayers of his servants and second, that God delights to show mercy if we pray. Today, our lesson on the power of intercession will be taken from the life of Moses. We'll begin with an incident where Moses had been up at the top of Mount Sinai, communing with God, receiving from God the revelation of God's purpose and God's plan for the future of Israel. At a certain point in this communion between the Lord and Moses, the Lord changed the direction of the conversation. And he told Moses that while Moses had been up at the top of the mountain, 
The Israelites down at the foot of the mountain had turned aside from the way that God had set before them and had gone into idolatry and had actually made a golden calf and were worshipping it at that very moment while Moses was up there with the Lord at the top of the mountain. The Lord's uh, attitude was, Moses, let me alone, I'll destroy this people and I'll make a greater nation out of you. We'll read now the words that describe the incident. Beginning in Exodus chapter 32, verse 7. The Lord spoke to Moses, Go down at once, for your people, whom you brought up from the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. Let me point out something that's almost comical in the midst of this intensely serious situation. Neither the Lord nor Moses would accept responsibility at this point for Israel. Each of them was so disgusted with Israel the Lord said to Moses, Your people, whom you brought up, a little later on we'll see that Moses said to the Lord, Thy people, whom thou broughtest up. So, as it were, Israel was in such a state of degradation that neither the Lord himself nor Moses wanted to be identified with them. All right, I'll go on reading now. God goes on saying to Moses, They have turned aside quickly from the way which I commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf, and have worshipped it, and have sacrificed to it, and said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, they are an obstinate people. Now then, let me alone, that my anger may burn against them, and that I may destroy them, and I will make of you a great nation. Note those words, let me alone. I will come back to them in a little while. Now we have Moses' response. Then Moses entreated the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why doth thine anger burn against thy people, whom thou hast brought up from the land of Egypt? Notice Moses said, Lord, they are not my people, they are thy people, whom thou hast brought up from the land of Egypt, with great power and with a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians speak, saying, With evil intent he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to destroy them from the face of the earth? Turn from thy burning anger and change thy mind about doing harm to thy people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, thy servants, to whom thou didst swear by thyself, and didst say to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heavens, and all this land of which I have spoken I will give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. So the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to his people. Let's pick out now the main salient features of this tremendous incident, this outstanding example of the power of intercession. I've already pointed out that neither God nor Moses at that moment wanted to be identified with Israel. God said to Moses, your people whom you brought out. Moses said to God, thy people whom thou hast brought out. And then I also uh, noted that in verse 10, the Lord said to Moses, let me alone that my anger may burn against them. Have you considered that? That God, in a way, said, Moses, if you'll step aside, I'll act. But if you remain there before me, I can't act. You see, that's the whole faith of the intercessor, that the intercessor's presence between God and the objects of his wrath restrains God's wrath. Just imagine Almighty God saying, let me alone. But you see, the marvelous thing about Moses was that he wouldn't let God alone. He stayed there. He held on. Then look at the motivation of Moses. God gave him the most tremendous promise. He said, I'll blot these people out and I'll make of you a great nation. 
how many people would have been delighted with the prospect of becoming the unique head and founder of that great nation. But Moses was not concerned for his own glory. He was greatly concerned for God's glory. And when he spoke back to the Lord, the first thing he said was, If you do that, then the Egyptians will say you never meant to do your people good. You brought them out only to do them harm. Think what will happen to your reputation in the earth. So you see, Moses was not concerned for his own glory, but he was greatly concerned for God's glory. And then notice the basis of Moses' appeal to God. He appealed to two things, God's word and God's oath. Remember, he said, thy servants, to whom thou didst swear by thyself and didst say to them, I will multiply your descendants. That's really the basis on which the intercessor comes to God. God's word, God's oath, God's commitment. He says, God, you're a covenant-keeping God. I trust you to keep that covenant you've made. I believe you won't break it. I'm standing here because I believe that. And then notice, as I've said already in regard to Abraham, God responds to the prayers of his servants. The translation that I read says, The Lord changed his mind. That somehow staggers my own mind, that a man by his prayer can cause God to change his mind. And yet, the scripture indicates that it's so. God wants us to influence him. He wants to be changed by us in the direction of his highest will, but he waits for us to do it. By that act of intercession, one man, Moses, saved a whole nation. That's the power and the possibility of intercession. Now we're going to look at another example of the power of intercession in the life of Moses. But this time Moses was not the only intercessor. Moses and Aaron became intercessors together. I think that's very significant because in the previous occasion that we looked at, Aaron was really the source of the problem. But thank God Aaron had progressed in this incident to where he was part of the solution. This incident is found in the 16th chapter of Numbers. There had been a kind of rebellion of some of the leaders of the various tribes against the leading or the leadership of Moses and Aaron. Some of the other leaders had risen up and said, we are just the same kind of people as Moses and Aaron. They have no preeminence over us. God had intervened at a certain point with a signal judgment and caused the earth to open and swallow up some of the people who had led this rebellion against Moses and Aaron. And then the next day, all the congregation of Israel turned against Moses and Aaron and accused them of being responsible for the death of the people who had been swallowed up by the Lord's judgment. We'll read on now from this point in Numbers chapter 16, beginning at verse 41. But on the next day, all the congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, saying, You are the ones who have caused the death of the Lord's people. It came about, however, when the congregation had assembled against Moses and Aaron, that they turned toward the tent of meeting, and behold, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared. God visibly and personally intervened at that point. Then Moses and Aaron came to the front of the tent of meeting, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Get away from among this congregation, that I may consume them instantly. Then they fell on their faces. And Moses said to Aaron, Take your censer, and put in it fire from the altar, and lay incense on it. Then bring it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them. For wrath has gone forth from the Lord, the plague has begun. Then Aaron took the censer as Moses had spoken and ran into the midst of the assembly. 
for behold, the plague had begun among the people. So Aaron put on the incense and made atonement for the people. And Aaron took his stand between the dead and the living, so that the plague was checked. Let's look at some of the outstanding features of that incident. First of all, I have to say I marvel at the patience and long-suffering of Moses. These people had complained and murmured and disobeyed time after time. Now God was saying that he was going to destroy them, and Moses pled with God for them. I think perhaps many of us would have said, At last, Lord, you've seen what kind of people they are. Go ahead, they deserve it. But not Moses. That uh, remedy that Moses gives to Aaron, that's a beautiful picture. The censer with the burning coals from off the altar, and then the incense on top of the coals going up in a fragrant white smoke. That typifies the praying heart. A praying heart has to be burning like those coals. And as the prayer goes up from a praying heart, it goes up like the fragrant white incense before God. And then notice Aaron's posture. He took his stand between the dead and the living. That's the position of the intercessor, the one who comes in, in between. And where the white incense went up, the plague stopped. That's a picture of what intercessory prayer can do. Aaron had been part of the problem the first time. Now he was part of the solution. Doesn't that encourage you and me? Doesn't that inspire us to think in terms of moving out in faith and becoming intercessors and wafting up that fragrant white smoke of intercession that can change the situation and save those who are doomed to die. In my two previous talks this week, I took examples of this ministry of intercession from the lives of two great servants of God, Abraham and Moses. Certain features emerged which are characteristic of men and women who have mastered this art of intercession. For example, intimacy with God, and then boldness in addressing God, and then conviction of God's absolute justice, both to judge the wicked and to spare the righteous, and a concern for God's glory. Conversely, a disregard of personal interests and ambitions. Now, for my talk today, I'm going to turn to another great servant of God, Daniel. The incident that I'm going to speak about is found in the ninth chapter of Daniel. But first, I want to look at something that took place in the sixth chapter of Daniel. I want you to see the background of Daniel's habit of prayer. Some things don't just come automatically at a moment's notice. There are things in our lives that have to be carefully cultivated by the right habits. And Daniel was a man who had cultivated the habit of prayer. At this particular point in his career, he was, as it were, the prime minister of the Persian Empire, but the men under him were jealous of him, and they tried to get him put out of his position. They couldn't find anything to criticize the way he handled his job, so eventually they knew the only way they could get at him was on the basis of his religion. So they persuaded the emperor of Persia to pass a law that for 30 days no one was to pray in that empire except to the emperor. Now, of course, for Daniel, as an orthodox conforming Jew, that was an impossible situation. Daniel always prayed three times every day with his window open toward Jerusalem. And when this new law was passed that made it death to do so, he still went on doing the same. 
This is what we read in Daniel 6.10. Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. I want to pick out some features which I think are significant. First of all, three times a day, every day, speaks of persistence. And then that window opened toward Jerusalem speaks of focused prayer. Daniel is an example of persistent, focused prayer. How important it is that we're persistent and also that we focus our prayers on specific objectives which are in line with the will of God. Then I want you to see how important prayer was to Daniel. Prayer was so important to him that he would not give it up, even if it meant going to the lion's den. And the other thing I want you to see is that Daniel's prayers were so effective, Satan feared Daniel's prayers so much, that he worked to change the laws of the Persian Empire just in order to stop Daniel praying. And I'd like that you and I would ask ourselves, do our prayers frighten the devil that much that he wants to change the laws? Maybe they do. Now I want to go on to Daniel chapter 9, the particular incident that I want to look at in a little more detail. It says there in the first three verses, and Daniel is speaking, In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last seventy years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. One thing we need to see there is that our great source of understanding and direction is the scriptures. Daniel was not only a man of regular prayer, but clearly he was a man who regularly read the scriptures. And it's important that always our original and primary source of inspiration and direction and understanding of the will of God should come from the Scriptures. Secondly, I want you to see how Daniel responded to the revelation that he found in the Scripture. He found there that the desolation of the city of Jerusalem was to last 70 years. As he had a position of influence and authority in the Persian Empire, he had access to the records of the Empire, and he knew that the 70 years had almost run their course. In other words, it was time for God to restore the Jewish people to Jerusalem and to build up the city of Jerusalem again. Now, some people, when they get a revelation from the Scripture, it goes to their heads. They become opinionated and they become super spiritual and they tell everybody how much they've found in the Scripture and they kind of explain God's plans and God's purposes. I don't believe that revelation is given to make us feel super spiritual. I find that Daniel responded to this revelation by appropriate action. He didn't simply say, isn't that interesting? God is soon going to restore Jerusalem. He saw that it placed a personal responsibility upon him, that if it was God's purpose to restore Jerusalem, then it was his duty to move in and associate himself with the purpose of God and commit himself in prayer and in fasting to what God intended to do. We read that Daniel found in the scriptures that the desolation of Jerusalem was to last 70 years. It's important to ask ourselves, where did Daniel find this in the scriptures? 
One scripture where this is clearly stated is Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 10 through 13. And the prophecy of Jeremiah undoubtedly was available to Daniel at that time. We'll read these verses in Jeremiah 29, verses 10 through 13. This is what the Lord says. When seventy years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you, that's the Jewish people, and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place, that is, Jerusalem. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. So there was a clear indication that after 70 years, God would begin to restore the Jewish people to Jerusalem and to restore the city itself. But God said, I'm ready to do it at the end of 70 years, but you, my people, are going to have to meet my conditions. You're going to have to call upon me and pray. And when you do pray, I'll listen to you. So Daniel knew that his responsibility was not merely to have an interesting revelation that the time had come to restore Jerusalem, but that his responsibility was to fulfill the part of God's people to pray. And God said, you're going to have to pray in a special way. You're really going to have to pray. He says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. When you give yourself unreservedly to seeking me and to prayer, then I will respond and do what I've committed myself to do. Now Daniel doubtless read those words, when you seek me with all your heart. How did he respond? Well, he says himself, I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and in petition, in fasting, in sackcloth and ashes. Now sackcloth and ashes were the recognized marks of mourning in that time. So Daniel, in a sense, became a mourner. He mourned the desolation of Jerusalem. There is a kind of godly mourning which is very close to the heart of God. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Isaiah 61.3 says, God has news for those who mourn in Zion. He will give them the oil of joy for mourning, beauty for ashes, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. That's not self-centered grief, but that's mourning over God's people and the situation of God's city. It's mourning in Zion. And Daniel was that kind of a mourner, and it meant much to God. Not only did Daniel mourn and pray, but he also fasted. God says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Scripturally, there is a certain specific way that God has ordained for his people to humble themselves before him, and that is by fasting. Now I want to show you the kind of prayer that Daniel prayed out of this situation of mourning and fasting and seeking God with all his heart. It's a very important pattern for us. He says in Daniel 9, 4 and following, I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with all who love him and obey his commands, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. I want you to notice how the word we occurs again and again in that short passage of prayer. 
Daniel was one of the most righteous men whose lives are recorded in Scripture. In fact, there's no actual sin recorded in the life of Daniel. He could have easily taken a self-righteous attitude concerning his fellow Israelites and said, these are the wicked people, these are the people who deserve your judgment. But he didn't. He identified himself with God's people. He took his place with them and said, we have sinned, we have failed, judgment belongs to us. Contrast the Pharisee who went up into the temple to pray. You remember what he prayed? God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are. Which kind of prayer reaches the heart of God? Not the prayer of the Pharisee, but the prayer of the man who with fasting and mourning casts himself without reservation upon the mercy of God, identifying himself with the needs of God's people. In my previous talks this week, I've taken examples of this ministry of intercession from three great servants of God, Abraham, Moses, and Daniel. Certain features are emerging from our examples which characterize men and women who have mastered this art of intercession. For example, let me list some. First, intimacy with God. Second, boldness in approaching God. Third, conviction of God's absolute justice, both positive and negative, that God will spare the righteous but judge the wicked. Fourth, a concern for God's glory and conversely a disregard of personal interests and ambitions. Fifth, a dedication to the task, even at the cost of life itself, even if it means the lion's den. And sixth, willingness to identify with those for whom we intercede. This kind of praying is not like that of the Pharisee, who said, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are. This kind of praying identifies itself with those for whom we pray. We say we have sinned, not they have sinned. Now for our fourth example of the ministry of intercession, we will look today at the story of Queen Esther. The incident we're going to look at is taken from the fourth chapter of the book of Esther. But first we need to fill in briefly the historical background. Esther was a beautiful Jewish maiden in the Persian Empire in the time of the exile of the Jewish people from their land and from the city of Jerusalem. She was an orphan who had been brought up by her uncle Mordecai. Mordecai was an important official in the court of the Persian emperor. At a certain point, Esther had been chosen to become the new queen of the Persian empire and had been raised up to a position of tremendous influence and importance in the emperor's palace, in the king's palace. However, Esther had never publicly revealed the fact that she was Jewish. After she'd been raised up as queen, a certain anti-Semite, an official in the court of the Persian emperor named Haman, had hatched a plot and obtained the endorsement of the emperor that on a certain day, some way ahead, there would be a pogrom against all the Jewish people in the entire Persian empire and they would all be destroyed. His plan was nothing less than that of total genocide, the destruction of the entire Jewish nation. And probably all the Jews in the world were living at that time within the borders of the Persian Empire. So it was a desperate situation. When this uh, decree went forth, Mordecai sent a message to Esther in the Queen's Palace that it was her responsibility to get to the king and persuade him to change his mind about the decree. 
Esther sent back word that she had had no access to the king for quite a while. Then the message came back again from Mordecai to Esther and uh, that she was to go in on behalf of her people. She sent back again this word, and we're going to read now from Esther chapter 4, verse 11. All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that he be put to death. The only exception to this is for the king to extend the gold scepter to him and spare his life. But thirty days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa, that's the capital city, and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. Well, there's a picture again of an intercessor. Note the commitment. If I perish, I perish. Whether I live or die, that's not the most important question. The most important question is that I do what I can on behalf of my people. Note what Mordecai is saying. Who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. This applies to us as Christians. We're a kingdom of priests. We've come to royal position. We cannot turn away from our responsibilities and be indifferent any more than Esther could. We must be willing to identify ourselves with the rest of God's people. We cannot hide away in some palace and say, well, this crisis doesn't concern me. We've got to be like Daniel, like Esther, willing to lay down our life, to risk all, to stand by the people of God, to identify ourselves with God's purposes, to take up the prayer burden. And then notice that Esther, just like Daniel, knew that there are times when praying alone is not enough. She said, not only must we pray, but all of us will have to fast three days and three nights. And after we've prayed and fasted, then I'll go in to the king and see what comes. Now we'll read how Esther went in to the king, reading on in the fifth chapter of the book of Esther. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace. I like that phrase, the inner court. Intercession always means coming into the inner court, into the immediate presence of the Lord. So she stood in the inner court of the palace, in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall, facing the entrance. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her, and held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. That was the evidence that he was prepared to show mercy, that he would not apply the law that she was to be put to death. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. By that act, she availed herself of the mercy that the king was offering. I think that's something that we have to learn to do, to go into God's presence, and when he stretches out the scepter of mercy, we have to touch the tip of the scepter. Then the king asked, What is it, Queen Esther? 
What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom it will be given you. She had prevailed. The rest of the book of Esther is the unfolding of the consequences of her intercession. But that is the point at which the victory was won for the Jewish people. It always is, I believe, won in intercession. That's the place where history is made. The course and destiny of nations are changed. That's where we become the kind of rulers that God wants us to be. I just want you to see one beautiful fact about Esther, that when she went in to the king, she didn't go in as a beggar. She didn't grovel. She put on her royal robes. She stood there in his presence, a beautiful and lovely queen. So Esther went in like a queen. She put on her royal apparel. She recognized who she was. She took her rightful position. I believe the same applies to you and me as Christians. We've got to recognize who we are in God's sight, the position that God has elevated us to. We're not to grovel. We're not to go as beggars. Listen to these beautiful words in the 52nd chapter of Isaiah. Awake, awake, O Zion. Clothe yourself with strength. Put on your garments of splendor, O Jerusalem, the holy city. The uncircumcised and defiled will not enter you again. Shake off your dust. Rise up, sit enthroned, O Jerusalem. Free yourself from the chains on your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. I believe that's a challenge to us in the way we pray. We are to become what God says we are. We're not to grovel. We're to get out of the dust. We're to arise and sit on the throne that God has offered us, that we may rule with him in prayer and intercession. Notice some of the things that this passage implies. First of all, what we must put on. We must put on strength and beauty. There's a beautiful verse in Psalm 96, verse 6, where it says, Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and glory are in his sanctuary. God wants us to put on the strength and the glory that are appropriate to his sanctuary, to his inner court. And then we must put away all that defiles. Symbolically, it says, The uncircumcised and defiled will not enter. We have to be pure. And then we must put away all that binds. We're to loose ourselves from the chains on our neck. What kind of chains bind us when we come to God in prayer? I think they're chains like doubt and unbelief and fear and wrong attitudes and relationships. We're to release ourselves from these chains. And then we're to take decisive action. We're to arise. We're not to lie there and grovel any longer. We're to realize the kind of persons we are in God and according to our destiny. Arise up and act like what God desires us to be. Let's go back to the picture of Esther just for a closing moment. Esther had taken the place of a previous queen, Vashti, who had been deposed. The reason why Vashti was deposed was that when the king held a great banquet and celebration, at the climax of the banquet he wanted to present to his people the queen in all her beauty, but she had her own banquet and she refused to come. So for that she was deposed. And I want to point out to you very simply the difference between Vashti and Esther as queens. I'll put it this way. Vashti put her own plans and activities before the wishes of the king. But Esther put the wishes of the king and the need of her people before her own life and desires. I believe that applies to the church today. So many times the church is like Vashti, busy with its own programs, its own plans, its own preoccupations, not open to what the king has to say. I pray that we may become a church like Queen Esther, putting the will of the king and the needs of our fellow people before our own life 
if necessary. Note that Esther's intercession shaped the course of history. And remember that you and I can do the same. All right, our time is up for today. I'll be back with you again tomorrow at this time. I'll continue with this theme of intercession. I'll be showing you how we can apply it in a practical way to our own lives. At the outset of my talk today, let me remind you of the definition of intercession which I gave earlier on this week. The intercessor is the one who comes in between. That's the literal meaning of the word. He comes in between God and the objects of God's just wrath and impending judgment. And he says, God, you have every right to strike these people. It's your justice that you do so. But I'm standing between you and them. And God, in all reverence but boldness, I want to say, if you strike them, you're going to have to strike me first. That's the position of the intercessor. In my talks this week, I've taken examples of this ministry from four great servants of God, Abraham, Moses, Daniel, and Esther. Certain features have emerged from these examples which characterize men and women who've mastered the art of intercession. Let me list some of these features for you briefly with a few references to those who best represent each feature. First, intimacy with God. I think we see that particularly in Abraham and in Moses. They talk to God just like a man talks to his friend. Then boldness. They spoke out to God. They really, in a sense, almost challenged Almighty God. Third feature, a conviction of God's absolute justice. This we see perhaps particularly in Abraham and in Daniel, who freely acknowledged that God's judgment on his people was entirely just. Fourthly, a concern for God's glory, and conversely, a disregard of personal interests and ambitions. We see this particularly perhaps in Moses. God said, I'll make of you a great nation. But Moses was much more concerned for God's reputation than for his own. And then, fifthly, dedication to the task, even at the cost of life itself. Both Daniel and Esther had literally to risk their own lives to keep on with their ministry of intercession. And then a willingness to identify with those for whom we intercede. Again, we see this particularly in Daniel and in Esther. And I contrasted this with the prayer of the Pharisee that Jesus speaks about in the New Testament. The man who said, God, I thank you that I am not as other men are. That self-righteous attitude is totally inconsistent with the spirit of the intercessor. Well, we've looked so far this week at situations where God found an intercessor, where the situation was saved. A nation, maybe, was saved. History was changed. What does the Bible have to say about about situations where there was no intercessor? We're going to look at that for a while in my talk today. We'll turn, first of all, to Isaiah 59. This is a terrible catalogue of the sins and the backsliding of God's people Israel. It's a picture of almost unredeemed and unrelieved failure, wickedness. It's given in the first person plural. It's an acknowledgement by the people of their own condition. We'll read from verse 12 of Isaiah 59. For our offenses are many in your sight, and our sins testify against us. Our offenses are ever with us, and we acknowledge our iniquities, rebellion and treachery against the Lord, 
turning our backs on our God, fomenting oppression and revolt, uttering lies our hearts have conceived. So justice is driven back, and righteousness stands at a distance. Truth has stumbled in the streets. Honesty cannot enter. Truth is nowhere to be found, and whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. What a terrible situation. Now we see God's reaction. In the middle of verse 15, The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one, and he was appalled that there was no one to intercede. Isn't that an amazing statement? Let me read that again. God was appalled that there was no one to intercede. It seems to me that the worst part of the entire situation was not the wickedness of the people, though that was bad enough, but the final thing that made God appalled, that he could hardly conceive, was that there was no one to intercede. It seems to me that that's the final evidence of backsliding and hardness of heart in the people of God when there's no one left to intercede. And it seems to me that at that point, the situation must truly be called hopeless. As long as there's an intercessor, there's hope. But where there's no more intercessor, it seems to me on the basis of Scripture, we have to say, there's no more hope. The one person that God looks for in such a crisis is the intercessor. We've looked at the situation in Isaiah chapter 59 where the nation was totally corrupt and there was no intercessor and this caused God to be appalled. Let's look at a similar situation now portrayed in Ezekiel chapter 22 somewhat later in the history of Israel but a similar type of situation. Beginning at verse 23 of Ezekiel chapter 22 the prophet says The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, say to her, that's the land of Israel, You are a land that is not cleansed or rained on in the day of indignation. It came to me very vividly one time that when a land is wicked and backslidden, the only thing that can cleanse it is the rain, not the literal rain, but the rain of God's Holy Spirit. And last week I spoke about the injunction in Hosea, It is time to seek the Lord until he come and rain righteousness upon us. That's the kind of rain that can cleanse a land. I do personally believe it's the only kind of rain that can cleanse this land of the United States. Now let's go on with the catalogue that follows of the failure of every section of God's people in this situation. And we find that there are four categories of people listed by coincidence in the English language Each of them begins with the letter P. They are prophets, priests, princes, and people. And it's significant that God begins his catalog of wrongdoing with the prophets and with the priests. The princes I take to be the secular rulers. But God doesn't lay the blame primarily at the door of the secular rulers. He lays the blame at the door primarily of the spiritual leaders the prophets, and the priests. I would say the prophet is the one whose responsibility it is to declare the counsel of God to God's people. The priest is the one 
who cares for the daily life of the congregation of God's people. Let's see now what God says about prophets, priests, princes, and then all the people. There is a conspiracy of her prophets in her midst, like a roaring lion tearing the prey. Her priests have done violence to my law and have profaned my holy thing. Her princes within her are like wolves tearing the prey. Her prophets have smeared whitewash for them, seeing false visions and divining lies for them. Notice the prophets, instead of reproving the wickedness, have covered it up with false excuses and religious talk. And finally, the people of the land have practiced oppression and committed robbery. So all sections of the entire nation are held guilty before God. The prophets, the priests, the princes, and the people. What was the general characteristic? What was the general guilt of all of them? I would say it could be summed up in the phrase, the ruthless pursuit of selfish ends. Everyone was putting his own gain, his own selfish ends, before those of his fellow men and before the interests of God. Now how did God respond to this desperate situation of wickedness? We read the two closing verses of that chapter, verses 30 and 31. God is speaking. He says, I searched for a man among them who should build up the wall and stand in the gap before me for the land that I should not destroy it. But I found no one. Thus, or therefore, I have poured out my indignation on them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. Their way I have brought upon their heads, declares the Lord. In this desperate situation, God did not look for a large group. He did not necessarily go to the rulers or even the prophets or the priests. But he looked for one man. What kind of a man? A man who would stand in the gap before him for the land. What kind of a person is it who stands in the gap before God for a land, for a city, for a nation? It's an intercessor. And I suppose one of the most tragic statements of Scripture is there at the end of verse 30 where God says, I found no one. It seems to me to indicate that even in that desperate situation, one intercessor could have changed the whole course of history and have could prevailed with God to the sparing of the judgment that came upon God's people. But when God could find no more intercessor, then there was no more hope. Let me say that again. As long as there's an intercessor, there is hope. But when there's no more intercessor, there's no more hope. How do you see the land of America today, the nation of the United States? Isn't it in many ways very much like the situation in Ezekiel's day? Isn't there guilt and failure on the part of almost every section of the populace, the prophets, the priests, the secular rulers, and the people at large? What is the situation? What is God's response? I believe God is looking for a man to stand in the gap, to make up the hedge, a man or a woman, an intercessor. Will you offer yourself to God for this ministry? For more great teaching from Derek Prince, tune in to Derek Prince Legacy Radio on a station in your area. Or you can listen online anytime at DerekPrince.org.